Okay, guys, we are in uh, Hebrews chapter 3. All right, now again, we're going to go through uh, Hebrews today, and for in order for you to help, in order to help you to understand what's being written and why it's being written, you've got to remember who the audience is, who the primary person is, is that he's writing to. Now, we can gather many things from it, because it is Scripture and it is for us, but if you understand why the letter was written and who it was originally written to, it will help you in understanding what's being said. And especially like when we come to Hebrews chapter 6, some of you have expressed interest in Hebrews chapter 6, which we'll get to in a few weeks, um, you'll understand what's being said if you understand who it's being written to. And who this letter was being primarily written to were Jewish believers who were facing severe persecution for their faith and were thinking and contemplating and getting ready to leave the faith, leave Jesus, and go back to Judaism. Go back to the way it was because there was no reason. I mean, basically they thought, well, you know, what's the use of going through this? Do you know what I'm saying? What's the use of going through this persecution? So they were getting ready to leave. And so the writer is writing them, and what you'll see here is, is he's making arguments as to why Jesus and following Jesus is the proper thing and how superior Jesus is. And then he'll also give admonitions or even rebukes intermingled in there to encourage them to continue on or to get their attention. So, for instance, today, remember, he's already told us about Jesus being superior to the angels. Now he's going to get to the heart of the matter with these Jewish believers because they're thinking about going back to Judaism, and he's going to talk about why Jesus is superior to Moses. Now, anybody know why he would need to make an argument that Jesus is superior to Moses? Anybody know? Okay, Moses brought the law. What would you? What did you say, Danny? Okay, yeah, Jesus is the only way to heaven. But why talk about Moses? And I think John hit it right on the head. Is because he's the lawgiver. And if you remember from the Gospels, the Pharisees kept referring back to who? Moses. Okay. And so when you're talking about people who are getting ready to go back to Judaism, they have to see that the Jesus that they initially followed is far superior than the Moses who gave the law. Okay, so that's what the argument is here. So we're going to see, especially today, that he's going to make an argument about Jesus being superior to Moses, and then we're going to also see that he's going to give them an encouragement, an admonition. Okay, let's look at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3, and we're going to see... Uh, that Jesus is greater than Moses. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. 
For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of these of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. All right, so first of all, there's an encouragement here. We see that in verses 1 to 2. The writer refers to his readers as holy and separated unto God. So the first thing he's going to do is he's going to refer to them as holy and separated unto God. Now, a couple of things I want to just point out here that's significant. Remember, who's he writing to? Jewish believers who were thinking about what? Yeah, leaving. But because they're believers, even though they're struggling and they're wrestling and, and dealing with doubts, the writer refers to them as what? Holy and separated, or separated. Holy To be holy means to be separated to God. Okay? So he's, he's talking to them about their standing, who they are. Alright? That's pretty significant that you and I need to grasp. How they are truly seen... Even though they're getting ready to want to leave, or thinking about leaving, if they're believers, they're holy or separated under God. Now, that's an awesome thing if you think about it, right? Because it basically means that you're standing with God. Does it have anything to do with you or what you're doing right now or even contemplating what you're doing? No. Your standing with God has nothing to do with that. It has to do with what he's already done for you. And that he's made you what? Holy. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's, that's something we need to grasp. How he sees you, how God sees you, is based upon what Jesus has done for you. And he sees you and he's made you what? Holy, which also means, when we think of holy, we think of that as a big religious word, something sacred or whatever. But what it means is that you're separated unto God. Okay, let's go on. He points out that they are partakers of the heavenly calling or salvation. When he talks about the heavenly calling here, he's talking about salvation. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a partaker of salvation. Do you understand what it means to be a partaker of salvation? Okay? That means you are a part of, you've taken part in the whole issue of salvation. So, what does he call them to do? He's calling them now, we are to think about the one who is the apostle and high priest of the faith. So, you as a holy, separated one who is a partaker of salvation, that's you and I as believers, we're called by this writer now to think about the apostle and high priest of our faith. Now, who, who is that? That's Jesus, okay? The writer points out that Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. Now, who appointed Jesus? God. God the Father did. So, you as a holy and separated one, partaker of salvation, you are to give thought to Jesus, because he was faithful to the one who appointed him. 
Okay? In fact, if you look there, verse, I gave you a scripture reference there, Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in the appearance of the man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He did what God wanted him to do. Even to the death of the cross is what the passage says there. So, here's what I want you to see. Jesus was faithful as Moses was faithful in constructing God's house or the tabernacle. Okay, so he, he's, the writer is going to make a, an, a comparison here. He's going to say that Jesus was just as faithful as Moses because Moses constructed a what? A house. What house was that? Well, in reference, it's reference to the house of God, which was represented by what? The tabernacle. All right? So, now he's going to talk in verses 3 to 6 about the superiority of Jesus over Moses now. Jesus is, first of all, in verse 3, Jesus is worthy of more honor than Moses since he created everything. All right, so here's what he's doing. He's talking to Jewish believers here. And he's saying, yes, Moses established a house. He established the tabernacle. And with that, what he's doing is he's saying that's representative of the whole law, which was not just the religious law, but their civil law and their social law. Okay? So to the, to a Jew, Moses is it. Well, now the writer comes along and says, okay, yeah, Moses is good. He was faithful. He did what he was supposed to do. But Jesus is far more superior because he just didn't establish the law He created what? Everything. The world. Creation. So, okay, you put those two together. The guy who created everything versus the guy who created the Jewish Mosaic law. Who's who's far more superior? The guy who created what? Everything. And that's what he's saying here. That Jesus is far superior to Moses. All right? I saw your hand there, Mike. Yep, even to this day. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because you're talking about Jewish believers now who are wrestling. They're being persecuted for following Jesus. And they're probably being told, hey, life will be so much easier for you if you just return back. If you just come back. Did you know what I'm saying? If you just come back. And recognize that we're we're it's we're far more superior, and so yeah, it, that's what's going on here. And even to this day, that happens even to this day. Okay, so he goes on. The writer states that the one who built all things is what God. The one who built all things is God. The reality is, is that the writer is saying here states that the one who built all things is God. He goes on, Moses was faithful as a servant to that which pointed to the things to come. So Moses was a servant, a faithful servant, in the things that were pointing to the things to come. Which are the the things to come? Jesus coming, dying, being raised from the dead, which is what we're celebrating today. All right, he goes on. He talks about Christ's house. Jesus was faithful as a son over God's house. So Jesus is faithful also as the Son. Alright? And then the writer points out that we are God's house if we hold firm to the hope. Okay, so if your trust and your faith 
is in Jesus Christ and and what his message was and the hope that he gave you, okay, then you are God's house. You are a part of his house. You belong to him. You're a part of his family. Do you understand? Now, the key thing I want you to understand there, if we hold fast to the what? The hope. See, that's what faith is in. Faith isn't in whether or not Jesus forgives you. That's a byproduct. That's not the whole reason for coming to Christ. It's so that you get forgiven and you can do whatever you want to do. In fact, I would make the argument, if you think that, there's some serious problems in fact, what the, the what the Bible says as far as the New Testament, as far as whether or not you truly know Jesus, because if you think, well, I can do whatever I want to, I'm forgiven. He says, Paul says in Romans, how can we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. It, that's not possible for us to just continue on acting like we're okay. So that we can have more grace. That's not possible. So here's what he's saying. Listen to me. If we hold fast, salvation is holding to the commitment of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and the promise of the hope, what? Later. The reconciliation with God, later. Salvation, later, being experienced fully. Do you understand? You're saved now, but you'll experience it later on. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. We like to focus on what? Forgiveness. But salvation and commitment to follow Jesus, it's so much more than that. Okay? And so that's what he's saying here. He points out that we're God's house if we hold fast to what? The hope. Do you understand what I'm saying? The hope. The hope when? Not now. The hope later. Okay? So, he goes on then, and he's going to give an admonition in verses 7 through 19, about rejecting Jesus. Okay, so let's look at what he says here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So, we see that we could not enter in because of unbelief. Okay, let's go on now. 
Let's see a few things here to kind of decipher what's going on here. The, refi- ref- the writer refers to Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, to warn his readers concerning unbelief. Now, let me just stop for a moment. I need to qualify what the word belief and unbelief means here. Belief is not simply agreeing to or acknowledging a lots of facts and saying in your mind, well, I believe that. It's not just simply that. See, that's what we define belief as in the United States. So if I simply believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I'm okay, I'm saved. Belief in the New Testament and the Old Testament is a is what I just described to you plus the actions that result from that belief. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's an acknowledgement that results in a change. That's belief. Do you understand what I'm saying? If I believe he's God, that I'm going to do what he says and I'm going to live the way he wants me to live because to live because I believe that. You know what I'm saying? It's not just simply believing a statement of fact. So, for instance, like, I believe that Obama is the president, but does that change my life every day as far as how I live? Not much. Now, somebody might say, well, he's changing your life. I understand that, but that doesn't mean, like, it's really impacting me day by day. Okay? The reality is, is we're talking about a belief that goes beyond just simply a mental exercise. We're talking about belief that impacts the way that you live. Okay? Because here's the thing. You and I, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You and I can meet people all the time and they say they believe something, but you'll say, oh, for instance, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. When I pastored in Canada, I met a car salesman who worked with a deacon from another church that was part of the churches that our per- church was a part of. And I said, and I didn't mention that he was a deacon. I just said, oh, well, do you know so-and-so? And this car salesman said, oh, yeah, I know him. He says he's a Christian, but I know different. So he's obviously expressing his what? Belief, but his what? Actions what communicate what? Something else. Do you understand? Well, I don't know that's in the Bible, George. Yes, James. James says, you say you have faith? I'll show you my faith by my what? Works. So he's going to talk about unbelief. So let's look at what he says here. Hardening your hearts means to rebel or persist in Stubbornness. So when we talk about hardening our hearts here in this passage, we're talking about meaning to rebel or pers- or to persist in stubbornness. So he goes on and says they are to remember those who died in the wilderness as they face God's wrath. Okay, that's a great illustration here that he's using. So okay, the nation of Israel, about a million of them. What did they witness concerning the greatness of God? Yeah, a lot of stuff. The plagues, the parting of the Dead Sea, the cloud, pillar of cloud during the day, 
the pillar of fire at night, manna from heaven, the earth swallowing people whole. Did you understand? Did you think they saw God as you've never seen him before? I mean, as in that God is real? Do you think they saw that? Wouldn't that make an impact on you? Yeah, you would think so. I mean, especially if you're grumbling and complaining and the ground opens up and swallows you whole. I think that would make an impression upon you, wouldn't it? Or fire comes down and burns you up. I mean, holy cow. Do you know what I'm saying? That would be significant to see all that. But notice something. They saw all that, but guess what? They still hardened their hearts. They still rebelled. They still decided to what? Do their own thing. So even seeing God in a powerful way doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change you. So he's wanting to remind them now, okay, I want to remind you to remember those who fell in the wilderness as they faced God's wrath. So here's the warning. They are to be cautious that they do not have the heart of unbelief that departs from God. Okay, what are you talking about a heart of unbelief, George? He's saying here, look, you guys need to be careful that you don't have a heart of unbelief that causes you to depart from God. That's basically saying, oh, you know, I believe in him, but you're just going to go do whatever you want to do, period. Even if you know it's wrong. We say, well, then we're all doomed, George. Because we all what? Sin. I think there's a little bit of a difference, though, between an attitude of just going and doing it and not caring versus you sin, but you know you did wrong, and you're convicted by it, and you know that you need to do better, and you struggle. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a difference there in the attitude of it. He's talking about a hardening of the heart. You ever had had somebody who's hardened their heart? Like they don't really care what they're doing? Do you know what I'm saying? When I talk to believers who are sinning, when you talk to them, they'll just flat out tell you, I know I'm not doing right and I need some help. Or I'm trying to overcome it. And I'm convicted about it, but it's a struggle. Versus somebody who says, I don't care. I'm forgiven. He's talking about that other group. The I don't care group. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's talking about the I don't care group. And he's saying, you're to be cautious. You and I, and and this is a good warning for all of us, because could it be easy for us to have that I don't care attitude? Yeah, every single one of us here. You're to be cautious that you don't have a heart of unbelief that departs from God. So what do we need to do about that? He's saying here, you and I, they need to encourage each other daily. All right, let's stop for a moment. Do you know why we gather together for church? It isn't just to hear me preach. It isn't just to hear the band. It isn't just to, to gather together for ice cream socials. It is not for, those are nice, but that's not the reason why we gather together. You want to know why we gather together? This reason right here. To encourage you to continue on in your faith because you just went through the meat grinder this week. 
You just went through some tough stuff. Life just threw the kitchen, just threw the whole kitchen at you this week. And you're struggling. In fact, you might even be like, man, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm just ready to chuck it. Isn't that what these Jewish believers were ready to do? We need to be what? Encouraged. So that's why we share what? Prayer requests. That's why when you connect with each other, you might say, hey, pray for me. I'm struggling. I'm, I'm, I'm suffering a difficulty. It isn't so that we get fat heads from all the knowledge that we know. It isn't so that we hear the songs that we love to sing. You know what I'm saying? It isn't so I can tell so-and-so about the deer I killed. You know what I'm saying? Or the fish I caught. Or how I'm doing with my turkey calling as I'm getting ready for season. Do you know what I'm saying? Or to brag about the game you watched. You know, that's not why, you know, those are all nice. We're here to what? Encourage each other to, to hang on. And you know what? This week you might not need to be encouraged to do that, but you might need to encourage somebody else. But trust me, there'll come a week when you might need somebody to what? Encourage you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Encourage you. Yes, just being around other believers. In fact, how many, last week at communion time, did you hear some of the testimonies that people said? It just felt good to be with family. To be with family, to be encouraged because the week wears you down. And doesn't the week wear you down? Do you know what I'm saying? The week wears you down. So here's the thing. This is so that they will not hard, be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I'm to encourage you, you're to encourage me, so that we're, we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you, do you understand? So, so it's like when we hear, well, you know, maybe we're saying, well, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. Well, a loving brother might say to you, well, you know, hey, don't you think that's wrong? Don't you think that's wrong? Well, yeah, but everybody's doing it. Well, yeah, but everybody doesn't have to answer to God for it like you do. When you stand before God, oh, what do you mean, answer for it? Well, remember what Jesus said, every idle word will be brought into what? Account. So how many of you said something stupid this week? I think all of us have, right? I have. How many of you said something in anger this week? Got two hands on that one. Okay. Now, how many of you will remember it a month from now? You already forgot. Okay. All right. There's going to be a day when you won't forget because it will be brought back up. It's a long day, Jim says. (laughs) Well, we got eternity, bro. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to need it. Okay. All right. Hey, here's what I want you to see. <laughs> wow. Okay. Sometimes you need to be, you need somebody else, a loving brother, to come alongside of you and say, "Hey, that's not good. Don't go down that path. Don't harden your heart." Hey, does hardening happen instantly? It happens slowly and what? Subtly, and then all of a sudden you realize it's like, man, you got a rock for your heart towards God. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's talking about here. So he goes on. Believers become partakers of Christ if they hold fast 
to their faith to the end. You know, we believe in eternal security here, that God keeps you secure to the end, but we also have to acknowledge the message in the scripture that says that you have a responsibility to hold fast to the end. You have a responsibility. Yes, Jesus keeps you, but you have a responsibility also to hold fast to the end. Because in Revelation, over and over, to him who overcomes, I will give this. The promises are there. To him who overcomes. It's going to take concerted effort on your part to hold fast. Okay? Yes, he holds you, but you have a responsibility as well. So holding fast means not allowing your heart to become hardened to God. So what's your attitude about the things of God? What's your attitude? Only you can answer that question. How you respond to that question right now in your heart will determine a lot of things. If you're frivolous about it, like it has no major impact in your life, that says a lot right there. But if you realize and you affirm, yeah, I need Jesus in my life, and I need him to help me, I need him to help me even in the struggles that I'm going through and the stuff that I'm wrestling with, that says a lot too. Whatever your response is to that question about how are you to the things of God or to God himself, that determines where you are. And so holding fast means not allowing your heart to become hardened to God. And here's the thing, I'm I'm concerned that maybe some of you, I don't know who you are, but I still have the concern that if you're not careful, you're going to become what? Hardened to God. And so here's the thing. So if you truly do know Jesus and you become hardened to him, what's he got to do to get your attention? Because later on we're going to get to where it talks about that he disciplines in this book. Okay? What's he got to do to get your attention if you're hardening your heart? Do you know what I'm saying? What's he got to do to grab a hold of you? Do you know what I mean? So the writer points out, points to God's anger with those who experienced the exodus. Hey, let me just stop for a moment. When you think about the exodus, what was God's attitude towards those who, even though they saw his glory and saw his greatness and saw his power, they still hardened their hearts. What was God's attitude towards them? Yeah, they didn't get to the promised land. He, he dealt with them. Okay, so let me just stop. God is the same today as he was yesterday and forever. So let me just stop for a moment. What do you think his attitude is towards you and I when we do wrong? Have you thought about that? That's scary. Because this is not his attitude. Oh, there they go again. Oh, I just wish that they would just do better. But hey, it's taken care of. They're forgiven. Is that God's attitude? He's the loving Heavenly Father. So when your kids do wrong, do you take that attitude? Oh, oh, sweetie. Oh, that's just so, I, you know, that really disappoints me. But hey, I love you. Do you do that with your kids when they do wrong? No. God does get angry about the junk in our life, and we need to remember that. And he does discipline us. 
So the writer here is trying to get us to remember God's wrath, God's anger. So they rejected God in spite of what they knew concerning his power. So here's the thing. The deal with the people in the Exodus and them dying in the wilderness is they continued to reject God even in spite of what they knew. So they what? They died. They didn't enter into the rest of the of Canaan. They died. So think about that. He, God had this plan for them, and he wanted them to move forward, go into the land. And from the very beginning, they rebelled. They questioned whether or not he was there, blah, blah. They just hardened their hearts, and they ended up having to wander around in the Sinai wilderness for 40 years until every one of those complainers and grumblers died. Then they could go in. Talk about needlessly wandering around because they refused to give up their what? Sin. You think God still is that way today? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go on. Their unbelief led to their destruction as they did not enter the promised land. That's what he's saying here. Their unbelief led to their destruction as they did not enter the promised land. Here, next week, Lesson 5, we're going to talk about entering the promised land. We're going to talk about entering God's rest. But today has been a warning, okay? A warning.